Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, and welcome back to Belonging. The podcast, Becca Piastrelli here with what will be the last episode I share with you for a bit. If you've been listening to recent episodes, you know that uh, there have been little moments, signs in the last few months to me that I maybe rushed my inner spring a little too much and have felt myself really needing to go back into the cocoon to further my healing and not rush the doing. And so I'm calling it a sabbatical or a second maternity leave. Atlas, my baby, is nine months. And in many ways, I bought into the very subtle messaging that I should be back, I should be done, I should be okay, and she should be fine, and that there's no real room for slowness and recovery. And even as I say that, I'm like, wow, no, I don't believe in that at all. But it was really happening for me. And I mean, in truth, I took a maternity leave, but when you work for yourself, it's a little different. And I have a book coming out in November, Root and Ritual is what it's called. And I submitted the manuscript about two weeks before giving birth. Uh, I was a bit of a mad dash to finish that up. And then I had to do edits uh, at four weeks postpartum throughout the month of October. There was really no way around that. And I made that as gentle as possible and had beautiful support But at the end of the day, I'm realizing now I didn't really give myself a proper maternity leave, a proper fourth trimester. 
And maybe that's not enough time, maybe three months, which is a trimester, is is a ridiculous notion. That's what I'm realizing is postpartum is forever. And for my conversation with Jesse Harold, we had a few a few episodes ago. It's it's several years. And what I'm really feeling in my body and my soul is a real earth-shaking identity shift that is really quite hard to put words to. And so showing up here has been beautiful and healing in so many ways, particularly because a lot of the most recent episodes have been me processing openly in front of you what I'm going through and talking to amazing people who have also gone through it or supporting people going through it. And there's a way in which I can't be here anymore right now. It's starting to feel impossible and it's starting to feel out of integrity. So I've made some big shifts. So I won't be podcasting. I have a feeling I'll be back, but I don't want to say when. I mean, I will be back. But there's there's a real need for me to not put a deadline or a due date or an end cap on this moment of going inward once again. Because then there's pressure and then there's a linear time crunch and that's feels anxious (laughs) for me. So yeah, I will be taking a pause from podcasting and I've Hearthfire, my Hearthfire membership, I'm stepping back from and radically shifting um, the model of it to be more peer-led, peer-supported. And I've really had to contend with a lot of feelings of failure and shame which also surprised me because cognitively I've I've been like, yeah, take as much time as you need, cyclical living, slow living, mothers aren't supported in the way they should be, postpartum is so hard, yes, yes, yes. And then when I had the realization that my postpartum time is going different than I expected, that I have less energy, that sleep is not happening in the way I want it to, that my baby is who she is and is developing the way she needs and that I am really called to her in a deeper way than I had anticipated. I've felt a little embarrassed of that, which is cringy to even say. A little bit like, wow, I I don't have this figured out. And I notice um, I'm actually stepping away from social media a bit more because I'm noticing on social media I'm really shopping for looking around for evidence of uh, other people doing it better than me, other people looking more energetic. Oh, they must be sleeping better. Oh, their baby must be developing faster. Oh, they can handle more workload. Oh, they're so excited. And it's just like not a good idea to do that, right? It's not a good idea to compare because everyone is in their own experience. And I'm noticing I'm craving people to sit by my side and say what you're feeling is absolutely normal. And I do have those. And I'm I'm wanting to step away and be with that experience of being validated and affirmed and moving slower and quieter. And honestly, I'm not sleeping very well. So everything feels harder in that space. So it's humbling and it's important that I share this. I know that even if it's a little bit uncomfortable. That darn perfectionism 
I really, I've, I've said for years, right. I've made it known I'm recovering perfectionist, recovering people pleaser. And in many ways, having a baby showed the, the ways in which I still have to unlearn that in my own body. And I wonder if that's true for maybe if you're listening, that came up for you when you had a baby of feeling like, whoa, I'm really challenged by the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't want to appear vulnerable and needing help and support and feeling like I could cry or rage at any moment. And so there's a real invitation, I feel, to take a look at expectation versus vision. I realized I had a a pretty, it was so subtle, I had a pretty intense expectation of how this was going to go. And when I've been realizing that it's not going the way I expected, well, then there's disappointment and shame. Whereas a vision, a vision painting a picture, there's a gentle softness there in which you can call in flexibility. You can call in a gentleness that I really crave. So I'm shifting expectation to vision in a deeper way. And my vision over the next few months is doesn't have a lot of doing, like I'm going to do this and do that. And I mean, the one thing I know I really want to do is be in my garden but, and sleep. But it's it's more like colors and flowers and movement, like slow-moving water and my favorite slow, sensual playlists and sleepy baby smiles in the early mornings and gentle, easeful laughter and a sense of planting my roots back in the earth. So I'll probably be back when my book comes out. So in the fall of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, But if you are curious about following along, the place I'll most likely share from here there is um, Instagram, Becca P.S. Jolly on Instagram. And so I have one final episode to share with you, and it's a good one. It's a swap cast. Oh, what's a swap cast, you ask? Well, Catherine Fink of the Heart is a Cauldron podcast, which is a very good podcast, particularly if you're interested in animism and folkways and spirituality and liberation for all. She came to me and asked if we could do a swap cast in which we interview each other. And this episode goes live on the same day on both of our podcasts. So I'll be meeting the listeners of The Heart is a Cauldron and you get to meet Catherine Fink, who is wildly cool and fascinating and brilliant and wise. So this episode, we cover so much, including um, very tender and vulnerable ways we have learned about belonging to the earth and to ourselves and how to be a bigger stand for liberation and the ways we've looked to our ancestors and folk ways and what we've learned and everything in between. So who's Catherine? Well, here's her bio. Catherine believes in a world where each of us lives in deep connection with our wild soul, our purpose, and our place in the wondrous web of being. To magic this world into reality, 
They sow an untamed array of seeds into the soil of their work as a mentor, podcaster, and queer mystic, weaving together animist ethics and enchantment, trauma-informed Buddhist psychology, transformational coaching, reverence for the mythic spirit and ancestral folkways, a devotion to justice, and a lifetime of living in the liminal. Connect with Catherine through her one-on-one mentoring sessions or via the Heart is a Cauldron podcast devoted to personal and collective healing through relationship with the animate world. She's also a prolific writer. So I present to you this beautiful conversation on layers of liberation in the web of being with myself and Catherine Fink. And I'll see you on the other side. Becca, I'm so happy that we're doing this right now. Me too, because I have just been like waiting for the moment we became friends. (laughs) I think it just happened. (laughs) Uh, Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully this will be an enjoyable conversation for other people as well, but I know I'm going to have a really fun time. Um, Thanks for, you know, being as excited as I was about the idea of doing a swap cast. So for folks maybe new to that idea, this is where Becca and I are actually going to interview each other, essentially. We aligned ahead of time on some, you know, just things that are in our heart right now, things we wanted to talk through together. And yeah, so we're just going to take turns sharing our thoughts on on some similar things. And I'm actually going to take the pass at the first question. And this is a question that I actually ask every guest of The Heart is a Cauldron. And so, Becca, as you know, the vision of The Heart is a Cauldron is to really nurture personal and collective healing through relationship with the animate world. And yeah, what do you feel called to share about your own experience of that? Hmm. Okay, so I feel this internalized pressure to have some sort of like really magical like life story of um, like being raised by like a grandmother who lived in a hut in the woods or like, you know, I heard fairies at an early age in the trees kind of a thing. And like the truth of the matter is my story is I grew up in like suburban tracked housing. I was addicted to television and processed food. And I thought like every plant was poisonous. <laughs> like I really, I mean, I, I, there's more to that. There was definitely enchantment for sure. And I camped and stuff, but mostly I just like wanted to be at the mall and watching Nickelodeon. My favorite show was Hey Dude if anyone is of my age. Oh my God. Hey Dude was the best. Right? To live on a dude ranch? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Horses. I know. Ted was so cute. Yeah. (laughs) So side note, I watched a lot of shows and movies about like an enchanted natural world, but I was very much in this like safety bubble of like the built world. And that really changed honestly through honestly the farmer's market. (laughs) I went to the farmer's market And as like a young 20 something who like wanted to be cool and go to the farmer's market in like cool California. And I think it was like honestly looking at vegetables and plants like beautifully displayed because, you know, aesthetics are so pleasing to me, like 
creating beauty is so important to me and feeds me. And I saw food in a different way in the farmer's market than I did at a supermarket, supermarket. And so there was something about understanding seasonally, like seasonal food. That was the access point to eating seasonally, which was an access point to plants healing you, which was an access point to the spirit of a plant, which is an access point, honestly, to the little spirit, the little child inside of me growing up before she became addicted to television and box macaroni and cheese and Hey Dude, which I still have so much love for. There was like a remembrance, right? And also like the ancestral DNA that lives inside of me that felt so alive and up in a way that no other thing I had ever tried, laid hands upon, taken in me, made me feel. And I wanted more, like the hunger, the craving, the desire. It was like herbalism school. It was books. It was making my own makeup. It was make, you know, it was herb walks. It was learning about like indigenous philosophies around the world. It just like snowballed into a life path very quickly. You know, I want to honor the fact that you said, oh, I want to have some really profound fairy tale story. And yet I can actually think of a few things that are more profound than food, you know, especially in the kind of cultures we were all raised in. So I really actually, for one, love that you rooted that story in food for us and really, yeah, mm. thank you for inviting them in at the start. Um, so You and I kind of put together some really, really beautiful questions that I'm so excited to kind of get into together today. So, I mean, the the theme, the heart of what we wanted to talk about was, you know, not surprisingly, belonging. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, pretty obvious that that's part of your work. It's also dear and near to my own vocation. And yeah, let's just start with what belonging means. (laughs) Do you want to open up with your chair on that? Sure. I feel hesitant in this moment because I I think I'm still trying to figure out what it means. Mm-hmm. You know, like as someone, uh, if you're down with human design, I'm a manifesting generator. And what does that mean? To me, the meaning I make from it is like I am constantly like there's many projects or life paths or philosophies I hunger for. And often it's like, so I learn one thing and then I do the next thing. I learn another thing and then I do the next thing. And so something like belonging, which is obviously the name of my podcast. It's what my upcoming book is about. There's so much in that is like an onion that has, you know, infinity layers that I'm constantly peeling away. And that keeps me engaged, which is important, I think, for me, because I'm really working on the wounding of tuning out and numbing out, you know, mm. and really just trying to stay engaged. So I've I've heard belonging defined in many ways. And I really like this idea of longing to be, belonging being longing to be. I think Stephen Jenkinson and Die Wise talks about it that way. And that we belong to what we long for. And in that, the many onion layers of that, I realize belonging is not ever one thing and it can go deeper and deeper. And so the way I frame it in my own journey that I take people who work with me through, that I take people through in my book is these four areas that are 
a healing journey for me in feeling like I belong, feeling like I belong to the earth, in the earth, of the earth, and that I'm not separate from the earth, feeling that I belong in community. That's a big one, right? That I can be accepted for exactly who I am, that I can lean on, trust people, I can give and receive support in that way, that I belong to a lineage of ancestors, of more than human beings, like that I come from a long lineage that is wide and vast and ancient and that, you know, I didn't just pop up here now and I don't know from what. And then within and of myself, like in my body, in my bones, in my emotions, in my traumas, that like it is all, it all belongs. So those are the four areas that resonate for me and every little like belonging ping wound trigger, I can sort of fold into one of those four categories in a way that helps like my brain self make sense of what all the other parts of me, all the other selves are working with. So I'm dying to know what you think. about belonging because I talk about it so much and I'm just like, you know, when you're so in your stuff and your work and you're right and you're just like, what do other people think here? Like, what do other people, because belonging is like so in the work of others. And so it's a, it's just like a buzzword, you know? And so I just, I'm always curious and I watch you from afar, mostly on Instagram, which I know is a percentage of our lives. And the way I view you, particularly in your relationship with the land you live on mm-hmm. and in your rituals, my perception of it is like, mm, she's really, she's really working that. I can see, I can see a sense of comfort in being here now in, in the place where you are. So I'm curious what, what you think about all of this. Oh, um, yeah. First of all, big caveat that I never want to sort of portray myself as like, uh, you know, the master know. of anything. But <laughs> totally. I, I do like that is just so passionate for me that I know you and I plan on talking in a little bit about our journeys with belonging. And so I'll absolutely touch on how I got to that place of feeling so in relationship with this web of being I'm part of. But to stay with the question of, you know, how do we even wrap our heads around what belonging means? Um, I, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for the complexity you brought to that question. Just more of that, please. You know, always more complexity and less simple answers. So I'll offer something similarly <laughs> complex, right? Where, you know, meditating on this ahead of time, I was thinking of belonging as there's this phrase that just keeps following me. It's not even a phrase, it's a hyphenated word, and it's just not alone. And the sense of belonging I have is Mm. being not alone, each in the fullness of ourselves. And so to kind of break that down a little bit, you know, I want to first just say that I think a lot of us carry a wound of feeling alone at our core. And I think that's baked into the kind of capitalist supremacist culture we're all part of. On top of that, a lot of us have experienced trauma or just other life happenings that have taught us that we're alone. And so when I talk about not aloneness, to me, that means 
you know, it goes way beyond like there's someone there for me, right? Because that's just a basic sense of safety, which is so, so important. And so many of us don't have that sense of safety. But this not aloneness I'm talking about is really at its heart interdependence and reciprocity and just keeps going back into relationship, which I know Becca is like totally your jam as well. You know, the idea that someone's there for me and I'm there for them in response is one of the most precious things we can offer each other. And it's certainly the kind of deepest truth I found in animism, rituals, social justice, like whatever, it just keeps coming back to that. And the second part of that, I think this will really resonate with what you already beautifully shared, Becca, is if we're not alone in the sort of fullness of ourselves, you know, this makes me think of the fact that we so often have to hide who we are especially people who have been marginalized, right? But this can even happen, you know, I know I've done this where conversely, I'll expect other people to hide who they are sometimes, right? Because I want them to stay who they were when we first met <laughs> or, you know, apply or, or live up to like a really rigid set of standards. So when we're in the fullness of who we are as part of our belonging, that really does two things to me. It honors the universal kind of innate divinity that I really see is inherent to all beings. And it also honors our individual truths. And you totally just spoke to this really, really well, you know, that belonging doesn't have to, well, it can't be about sameness, right? It invites us to share our identities, our gifts, and also when we're struggling, you know, or when we've harmed someone or we've been harmed by someone else, belonging really has to hold space for, for all of that. Yeah, that's hmm, thank you for all of that. I feel frustrated sometimes with like the one dimensional branding of belonging as being like getting along or I want to say harmony, but I think, you know, that's like uh, what is harmony in that way? I think I'm someone who is working on my conflict averseness. Is that the word? Avoidance. And you know, in the deeper investigation of on this belonging journey I am on and wanting to lean into being a part of healing white supremacy and being a part of healing like the impact that my like settler colonial ancestors had and all these things like there's there's so much complexity to hold, including our own shame uh, including looking at harm, including being willing to be with discomfort for an extended period of time and still be able to sleep and self-regulate and love ourselves and love one we are in conflict with. Yeah, there's so much there that just what you shared really brought that up for me is that belonging isn't necessarily just like happy face, calm, nervous system, singing around a fire kind of a thing, even though I'm super down with that. <laughs> like I want that. But like the journey to that is powerful and I think makes getting to some sense of completion, some sense of resolution feel like a deeper healing experience. Do you follow? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. On I'm a hundred percent with you on belonging has to be radical or it's not belonging because otherwise it's, you know, it's make-believe or it's oppression, you know, on, on either end of the spectrum. 
another question of ours that feels really related to what you were just speaking to, and I think is is just so important to this conversation. And that's the question of how belonging can be an antidote to empire. Mm. You know, and it's intersecting oppressions. And so I'm happy to kind of share my thoughts on this first, if that's yeah. all right with you. Yeah. So empire, you know, is at its core really built on supremacy, right? Of of one above another. And that trickles all the way down from at its kind of like widest lens. We've got supremacy of the of humans over the earth we've got nation over nation and then within a nation citizen group over group and then individual over an individual and that just creates so many intersecting layers right of race and gender and orientation and even species and i really feel like it's important to call out that the idea of belonging is core to empire in a way in a kind of perverted sense, where, you know, I'm thinking even of the term fascism comes from an Italian word and concept uh, referencing a bundle of sticks. So if you imagine, you know, a single stick is hard to break, a bundle of sticks, actually kind of impossible to just break with your own hands. This idea of a group that in unifying can't be beat. Shout out, by the way, to Sophie Macklin, who introduced me to that word, and you know her. Oh, I love Sophie. Yeah, and her amazing course on engaging with ancestry in an anti-fascist way. But yeah, so it sounds inclusive, that idea of fascism, but it's actually extreme gatekeeping. It's really centered on homogenous identity that's focused against others, and it makes me think of what you were saying, Becca, about you know belonging can't be about same you know, just being the same or like all being kind of happy around, you know, happy around the fire. And we're, of course, in like the middle, <laughs> in the middle of reclaiming belonging, just like we're reimagining a lot of things right now. And so I, you know, just keep asking myself, like, what does belonging mean when there are no borders? You know, what does belonging mean when there's no prison industrial complex or no others? You know, I go back to the wisdom I've received from my Buddhist teachers or the earth themselves. Like I, I often revisit again and again, mycelia, the mycelia of fungi, you know, that kind of like interwoven fine root system under the earth. And then you have these little fruiting bodies that are the, the actual mushrooms, right? So you have these individual mushrooms but they're all connected under the ground. But in any of these sort of teachers of mine, there's this idea of, you know, no escaping interdependence. You know, at our most basic level, we're all beings on one planet um, and our fates really bound up with each other. So even if I find liberation, you know, it won't be sustainable if uh, those around me aren't also able to access liberation. And conversely, like, I'm much more likely to, to get free when I support the freedom of other people, it creates more room and support for all of us. And because of that, like this radical revisioning of belonging and th that that centering of the radical aspect of belonging, first and foremost, to me, that means really centering those who've been most cast out of belonging. And by, you know, kind of addressing those root issues, we um, have these really powerful, beautiful ripples that kind of impact all of us. Uh, one last thing I want to offer here 
as I'm thinking about this is I'm curious if there are some people listening to this who might feel some of that discomfort you were talking about, Becca, because we all do have such a deep yearning for belonging. And so when we kind of complicate things in this way or like really want to center anti-racism, for example, or, you know, anti-fascism, it might feel for some folks like that's like it's it's work or it's something they're kind of beholden to do. And I just want to kind of plant that's and I know these are questions I've certainly grappled with myself, right? And I just want to kind of plant the seed or offer this up to reiterate that idea of this kind of work truly benefiting all of us. You know, I think it can benefit even, you know, oppressors in the long run. I'm thinking of like the quote of a black educator, Dwayne Reed, who said, white supremacy won't die until white people see it as a white issue they need to solve rather than a black issue they need to empathize with. And <laughs> I even love this joke that the Dalai Lama goes back to again and again about wise selfishness, where, you know, if we have trouble adopting that like central tenant of Buddhism, this belief in compassion, first and foremost, that we can consider the ways that being compassionate to others actually really does help us. So yeah, just summarizing all that up, I definitely feel belonging as an antithesis to empire, right? And when we frame it in that like not aloneness that I mentioned earlier, that radical interdependence, it really invites us to, all of us, to express that fullness of ourselves by, you know, first focusing on those who've been denied that fullness. So that was a, a lot there, I know, but I just loved that we were going to be talking about this. Mm, thank you for all of that. What you share is hitting me in a, I mean, in a time such as this, where <laughs> there's a lot that's crumbling and there's a lot that's bubbling up in the culture uh, that's always been there. You know, and I find in my efforts to be unlearning individualism, unlearning, you know, the impacts of capitalism, unlearning, you know, the amnesia of whiteness, trying to like bust through that fog and return to the land and return to myself and return to this idea of interdependence is so I love it. I the mycelium networks, the tree internet, like yes, 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 yes which is why I really am reminding myself in this moment to like walk the land more and because it's, it's right there. It's right there showing itself to us. And I find when I get on my little pocket computer, I forget. I forget. I'd say like in my spaces, there's a real conversation about trans women in, in women's spaces that I, I'm very troubled and frankly fired up about and confused about many in my community who who are saying things that I'm just like, why are you saying this? This is not liberation for all. And have been really trying to bring in the compassion of like, what are they feeling? Why is there such fear? Why is there such like what? And also recognizing the collective trauma, talk about interdependence in this moment in time, pandemic times, like all the uprisings, all that's happening, like this virus we're all hearing about, just like the way we all constantly gather news and information in a constant way and our nervous systems are feeling this collective trauma, that's interdependent, that's being shared. And then we have these sort of like internalized individualist systems of protect, protect ourselves. 
And in that way, how can we truly achieve collective liberation and belonging? I don't think we can. (laughs) I don't think we can. And it's such an atrophied muscle in myself as someone who talks about it a lot. It's still an atrophied muscle that I really have to just like return to consistently. And what and how do I return to that most easily? Walking in my garden, looking at the trees, you know, seeing the mushrooms pop up, seeing how the ecosystem, as attacked as it might be by pesticides and urban development and drought where I live, like it's still connected and it still can show me how to thrive. So I I thank you for your words and reminding me of that being a super big component of my work in this time. Mm. I so sympathize with that (sighs) despair at just feeling sometimes like this is just not possible. And something I I touch into myself that maybe this will help someone (laughs) listening and feeling that feeling into that despair as well, that we're already living the interdependence. Like there's, there's literally no, like that is reality. There's no living outside of that. And so that part of the work is done. Like (laughs) we don't need to do anything to exist within that interdependence. And so then it's a question of, well, how do we meet that with compassion and and yes, Becca, like, yeah, we're always going to have to kind of dance between the mm, just tremendous feelings around that and touching back into that hopefulness that we can, you know, when we're not alone, we can help provide for each other, right? So you're despairing right now, I can provide you some hope. And when I'm floundering, you can share right back. Mm. I wonder if this is maybe a good moment for us to kind of share our personal journeys with belonging. Do you want to go first or second on that one? Mm. Oh, I'll go. Yeah. I feel like we're playing truth or dare at like a sleepover. <laughs> it does like, feel a little bit like that. <laughs> I'm like, which which one do I choose out of the hat here? Okay. Well, what's okay, what's speaking to me? I can tell you what's been speaking to me over the last year as like a new mother is really trying to remember our interdependence in a time where many of us have felt truly afraid of each other's bodies. Mm. you know, in the time of of this COVID virus. And there's no judgment on that statement. It's just true. (laughs) There has been a fear of each other's bodies. And in the last year, I became pregnant and had a child after many, many years of working on that. And my experience, which I was like prepared for cognitively, but then it happened somatically was, I had a child and I needed people to show up for me. I need I truly could not do it alone. And I felt ashamed of having to need people. And and the thread, the through line of my entire life is wanting 
what others had, but feeling like I couldn't have it, you know, like wanting the appearance of being a part of like a clique, you know, in school and not feeling like I was cool enough, wanting to be like the smartest, a part of the smart girls, but like wasn't smart enough. There's always that I'm not enough thing. And so that's and and I've had a lot of people tell me that like I have the appearance of like having lots of friends and feeling really at ease with people. And it's like, well, it's actually one of my biggest wounds is like, can I really rest in the knowing that I am not abandoned and I am not alone? And the investigation into that is many generations and many and so, so much can be said about how the the women and men of my lineage that I know of have literally been abandoned and abandoned. But it hit really hard right after I had a baby and people were afraid of my body and I felt like I was supposed to be afraid of their body and I couldn't get like the physical holding that I needed. And that's too much to ask for one person. And so in my case, it was of my partner, my husband, Tim, where I was projecting onto him the needs I had of like a 20-person village. Like, <laughs> So it was too much for him to do. It's a really interesting thing. I think I don't think just postpartum people have it. I think those who are grieving have it. I think those who have recently divorced, those who lost a job, there's like these transitional moments. And it's something I've been talking about a lot in the latest episodes and, and, and processing because this is the place I can process really this sense of really saying I need to be supported and knowing that a lot of us just don't have the tools and, and still demanding it. I say demand, that's like an intense word, but really saying like, no, no, this is, this is what I need and this is what you need. This is what we all need. We need to remember we need each other. We need to show up for each other. And it's just hard. It's just hard. And I can just see throughout my entire life that being a big, big part of it. Yeah. So what I've been doing is I've been talking about it a lot on the internet and on this my podcast and saying I feel really awkward and like demanding and I'm afraid what you're going just like totally just self-disclosure and it feels intimate and I don't want to, you know, step over your needs and I'm afraid this feels out of reciprocity and I don't want to seem needy. I just say it all. But I need, you know, you to hug me. I need food. I need you to hold my baby, like wear a mask, whatever you have to do. This is what I need. And that's been helpful. That that seems to sort of unlock a little bit of the sort of spell I think a lot of us have been under for a long time around not showing up for each other and not asking others to show up. So that seems to be one of the, my paths to belonging is to just sort of narrate my inner my inner dialogue around community specifically. Oh my gosh, my I have so much admiration for that example of voicing that inner dialogue. I think part of the belonging thing is like, oh, we feel like we have to show up in this neat and tidy package, <laughs> right? And I likewise have experienced the power of that moment of just voicing like, 
all the stuff that comes with us trying to show up as our full self um, and feeling that safety and doing that. And I also wanted to, to just honor the fact that you were willing to answer that question of, you know, your journey of belonging by really starting with that wound. And you won't be surprised to hear that as I was reflecting on this, that was the same <laughs> sort of path ah. I took with it. Yeah. Where belonging has been both my greatest struggle and most joyful medicine. And in the one-on-one work I do with coaching people, I always invite them to invite you know, identify a kind of core wounded belief that's, you know, really showing up in most likely all facets of our life, right? And so you really bravely named the wound of abandonment. And mine is this deep belief that I am alone, which is why that, you know, that idea of being not alone is so core to my understanding of belonging. And thank you for nodding your head so reassuringly for those listening and not watching the video. Just your presence so helpful as we talk about these tender things. And, you know, as a child, I had a deep sense of kinship with the more than human world. So my earliest memories are all, oh, you know, Willow and the roly poly bug and geese and Queen Anne's lace, you know, and spirit was really alive for me. But humans were trickier (laughs) on my end where, you know, I was was very lonely as a child um, in terms of the human side. Definitely didn't have friends in Catholic school and got picked on. And then at home, there was actually a great deal of violence and chaos. And just really meant that I never felt safe or seen, kind of always had to prove my goodness. By the time I was an adult, I think it's pretty safe to say that I was sort of experiencing the opposite of belonging in like every way. So I felt really estranged from family and estranged from the wider culture that I really rejected, you know, just felt so heterosexual and it was so capitalist and so unjust. I was also estranged from the land. Like I knew there was no way I could stay where I'd grown up and even estranged from spirit at that point where Catholicism and I had a falling out pretty early on when I realized how they felt about women and queers and just right and wrong in general. And I was, you know, kind of witchy my whole life, even as a young adult, but it was kind of wrapped in a lot of fear and lack of community and stuff. So anyway, you know, I didn't have one big moment that like saved me, which I'm sure resonates with you as well, Becca, that instead it became about a really active practice of belonging in these kind of small and big ways for years and years. So, you know, a few examples of this, like I engaged or I, I, I disengaged um, from my biological family, you know, stopped speaking with them for a while so I could cultivate chosen family. I engaged in cultures that weren't only in opposition to what I was rejecting, but really modeling new ways of being. So like queer and punk and radical communities. And also I count as part of this, like connecting with ancestral ways that both predate empire and are also alive today in the midst of all this garbage, right? Um, To reconnect with the land, I had to kind of understand what being in relationship with place means no matter where I am so that it became less about like one place and more about capital P place. Right. And even belonging with spirit 
that was really a slow, regular practice of just following those threads of like curiosity and synchronicity that led to, you know, hedge witchcraft and animism and Buddhism and ancestral practices. So it was kind of like always following this map of feeling into who I am in my core and what I'm needing, what I have to give others, taking a step towards that and then kind of reflecting like, oh, that was safe. Like I'm actually cool. And in fact, I feel more aligned and my soul feels alive, you know, which to me is just kind of another way to describe the healing process, kind of bringing it all full circle for me. So fast forwarding today, so much of the work I do in the world is about this belonging, you know, whether that's coaching or on the podcast or the course that at this point, when this podcast release, I'll be likely releasing, but yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate it. I actually could like, I'm such a visual person. I feel like I was like watching your life unfold in a movie as you were sharing all of it. I'm really curious about the Catholic school a bit. I um, did not attend Catholic school, but I have beloved friends who talk about the impact it's had. And I, th- I think this sort of loops back to what we were talking about initially about like the perversion of belonging through like just like boxes of sameness, echo chambers. And, and I think particularly in religious in, in some religious spaces, the use of belonging as like a, a way to manipulate people into staying or not sharing truly who they are. I think about like evangelical communities and things like that. Cults. <laughs> I'm endlessly fascinated in cults from a belonging perspective. And I'm just curious what you think about that, having been in that world of Catholicism. Hmm. You know, the thing that's arising for me is you touch on this theme of toxic religious spaces and sameness and the the places that intersects. Part of the struggle for me, I think, was the fact that so much of myself was queer. So I am a, you know, a gender queer person. I'm pansexual and I did not know those terms or understand that in such an explicit way at a young age, but I knew that I was always different. And then on top of that, I don't know how I inherited this kind of innate sense of spirituality, but the fact that fairies were alive for me and the living world outside the church was alive. Like I remember even my favorite thing about the church was the little shrine to Mary out in the garden, like all the way across the parking lot. Like that was my real center point of the church. And so it was just a lot of things that the way that I was reared in the church just made me feel like they were wrong, you know? And when the wrongness of your very self is, you know, called into question, is is a price of belonging, then you you have to make a choice in that to abandon yourself. And I have no judgment around people who survive by 
finding ways to hide the parts of themselves they, they need to hide to belong and like find that. And there's the the choice to leave. And so I had a falling out with God at like 13 or something and was still forced by my parents to get confirmation. So I chose, for folks who aren't familiar, it's when you're in your late teenage years, before you're out of your parents' house, so when you still are under a pretty heavy influence from them, you have to ind- you know, supposedly independently choose to remain Catholic and like really own it, which don't get me started. But um, so as my little act of, I won't say little, I think all even small acts of resistance are important. So my act of resistance was to choose my patron. You're supposed to choose a a saint figure to kind of adopt as your role model as an adult in the Catholic Church. My patron was Saint Joan of Arc, who was, of course, a queer heretic burned at the stake, you know, all that stuff. So that's a bit of a long version of answering your question, but that was my experience of not belonging. I will actually, I do want to add, I have found my way back to understanding the parts of Catholicism that do nourish my sense of belonging. And that's like the actual like mystic tradition around it and the actual faith itself, not necessarily the church. And and I've also seen people who find really beautiful sense of belonging in more radical Catholic spaces. So yeah. Mm, cool. Joan of Arc. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> way to figure that out (laughs) for yourself it's hard to remember how much was like like for example I'm not sure how much their queerness was understood by me at that time and understood as part of the reason for my choice but it was just one of those moments that we all experience again and again where you feel that little tug on the thread and you just follow it and it leads you to this deep understanding and belonging with yourself that you get the full understanding of like so many years later. So Hmm. did you, what's your deal with religion and spirituality? What's your background there? Yeah. I was raised Unitarian, which felt like a place for folks who deeply, who left the church, but didn't want to leave church kind of a thing. And I told my parents I wanted to join the Episcopal church because honestly, that was the one I had witnessed with the most ritual. I really liked the incense and the regalia and the bells and smells. I loved it. And so I don't know where I found it. Probably a movie. And I just marched my mom to the local Episcopalian church, which had a queer religious leader. And that to me was like, oh, I'm down. Yeah. Like the bishop was a lesbian. I was like, yeah, cool, cool. And then my mom joined with me. I got confirmed. But I every time someone said a sermon, I was like, what are you talking about? Why are you speaking of like I remember there was one passage shared in, or like the Bi- the Bible passage before the sermon that was like describing the people of Ethiopia in a really screwed up way. And I was like, wait, what? And as I just got older and then I went to college, I was like, nope, nope. I've got a lot of issues with this. But I just was like, oh, but it's like a progressive church. 
And that's when I sort of real that was my pathway to like, oh, ritual is important to me. I can cultivate a relationship with spirit outside of like religious houses. I mean, it came later. All of this came later. And then I just sort of like shunned all religion. I was that person who is just like capital R religion is manipulative and not okay. And then as I went deeper into like Maria Gambuta's work and understanding like pre-Christian Europe, just understanding like Druidism and and just looking at these ancient relics and all of that stuff and then seeing that the churches were built upon these sacred places and under just understanding just the role of like a a well, just like the role of a holy well. And then going to Europe and seeing these wells and drinking the water from these wells and laying in the cemeteries next to these churches. I was like, yeah, okay, it's complicated, isn't it? (laughs) It's complicated and it's ancient and it's woven. So I love to go into churches. I think there's something really powerful in them. And some I go in and I'm like, nope. But most mostly I love going into churches because it's more than my brain can sort of cognitively criticize. If I just put that aside, there's something deeper that uh, is afoot. So I actually feel a little bit like I've lost words a little bit. Like there's more to be said here, but there's also more to be explored here And I find that I've just been really judgmental and I've softened it so, so much. Oh, yeah. The layers that you're talking about, like I remember going to one of the uh, Monts, like Mont Saint-Michel, but the one outside of uh, just on the edge of Cornwall there. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, I was on a kind of pilgrimage of sorts. And so I went to this place and, you know, it's one of those classic examples where there's lots of of evidence showing how this island was a really sacred place for pagan practice. And then now all you see is the gigantic, you know, sort of castle built atop and then the sort of abbey sanctuary. And in the abbey, in the little chapel, you even see, you know, very often in those kinds of places, you'll see Michael stabbing the serpent or the dragon as kind of like a symbol of the church sort of conquering paganism and and that sort of thing. And right there with you where I can feel all the conflicting things where part of me is just so angry and sad at what's been severed there and kind of hidden over. And then also, simultaneously finding comfort in the fact that it's still there, that the irony, you know, I had this, this is the coolest moment for me. As part of the same pilgrimage, I went to Glastonbury and I was standing in the sort of ruins of the abbey there. And I just happened to over, it was like one other person there with like his friends or he was like doing a guided tour or something, but he was talking about the place. And I just happened over here at just the right moment when he pointed out, you know, the irony of places like this is that in building over the pagan sites, they preserved them. Like the very act of trying to destroy this place, they kept it alive. 
which I'm getting goosebumps just remembering yeah. it even now. And just one last thing that I feel called to share on this, you touched on holy wells are such another beautiful example of this where very often associated with earlier goddess worship in various forms and then later became sites of like, you know, where saints were beheaded and then the spring rose up and Mm -hmm. um, that sort of thing. Right. And so I visited a lot of sacred wells on this trip as well. And it really drove home for me that importance of understanding that this kind of sanctity exists everywhere, that even though I'd gone on this pilgrimage all the way across the ocean, that I was already deeply immersed in that kind of relationship building where I live here on Lenape land, in the lower Hudson Valley. And so now there are several bodies of water, just like in the 10 miles from my house that I've really built up a relationship with and just know to be as sacred as some of the places I visit uh, visited on that particular pilgrimage. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'm so here for this conversation. First of all, is it St. Michael's Mount? Yes. <laughs> Why could I there not remember that? <laughs> oh, you're, you're almost there. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what you were saying about the churches preserving the sacred pagan sites by trying to build over them and destroy them. I remember being on pilgrimage in Ireland and seeking out the Sheelina gigs. So the Sheelina gigs, for folks who don't know, is this ancient symbol of a being who seems to be like an elder being who is crouched down on their haunches and pulling their vulva apart with their tongue out, sort of like a Kali-esque tongue out. And the only ones that really have been preserved are the ones that are on churches. So throughout, like, I mean, these are such ancient symbols, like pre-Christian symbols. And the ones that have been preserved are for the majority in churches, not just in Ireland, like all over Europe. You can look up the Gig maps. They're really quite interesting. And I became obsessed with finding as many as I could. And I remember there was one on the underside of a bishop's tomb in Kildare, Bridget's Kildare in Ireland. And my friend who lives there was like, we'll never know if he was like secretly like an ally of the goddess or like after he died, they were like, uh, screw you and put it under (laughs) this tomb. You know, and they're, they're in archways and and under like little bridges and you know the vulva lives through this and and so that in and of itself helped me shift my perspective on like where was it safe to protect these ancient mysteries and sometimes it was through the church because the church was like sometimes the safest choice for not being you know, killed or having your family killed. So in just like my research and deep deepening and understanding of the burning times and all of that happened, that deep severing, that violent time is to remember to bring deep nuance to that whole experience. Mm. Yeah. The, it gives me a lot of sense. It gives me a sense of resilience, right? Where 
to go back to that question of what do we belong to that you offered us at the start of our conversation, Becca, the things we feel most strongly that we belong to, we find ways to keep alive and belonging is always a practice. And we are infinitely creative in finding ways to practice that no matter the kind of situation. And yeah, amen. All when. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is maybe related in a way to a question I know you wanted to explore together, which was what have we learned about belonging through our podcast specifically? So maybe I can share some thoughts around that. You know, I, I mentioned already that the heart is a cauldron is devoted to, you know, that p- the podcast I create is devoted to personal and collective healing through a relationship with the animate world. And each lunation we visit with plants and animal wisdom and mythic archetypes and animist ethics and enchantment and earth honoring folkways. And so belongings, you know, really inherently wrapped up in that. But a couple of layers I wanted to, to invite in here, um, again, that theme of layers, I love that you invited that in. So really on in our conversation that I really wanted the podcast from day one to kind of work against this pervasive sense of magic and witchcraft and spirituality as synonymous with white European history. So I'm thinking of like the wheel of the year, for example, it's like always, I'm always hearing about like Ostara and Sawin and that's beautiful. Like no, no shade on either of those, right? Incredibly profound, but that's like the tiniest slice of how humans have created sacred relationship uh, with the world and belonging belongs to everyone, right? So I'm white and also of settler colonial descent, but really am part of that camp that believes we have to kind of betray whiteness. And so I set out to celebrate through the podcast uh, recurring threads of myth and ritual found amongst people past and present who are practicing belonging with the animate world. And one of the things I've learned in diving into, you know, month of after month of these like gloriously diverse expressions of all this is that belonging acts differently among different communities, but those actions often answer similar questions, like what it means to be an active relationship with the web of being. And just to be super clear, totally not proposing here that all cultures or folkways are the same, like not at all, (laughs) Or or that we can like neatly lump everything together, right? And we can't like map all this stuff on top of each other. But I guess what happened is that the heart as a cauldron taught me that relationship with the living world is so much more expansive and complex than I ever imagined and simultaneously so much simpler. So just like the example, those examples we've kind of already been talking about the ways that spirituality kind of finds a way to live on in all these different permutations, but that at the heart, like we're all just humans, like trying to belong to the earth and each other, right? Another lesson on belonging from the heart as a cauldron I felt like bringing in here is that belonging is something that we create in the present. And this kind of goes back to the examples of the pilgrimages you and I were both sharing. You know, I think a while ago there was like this really pernicious belief that I was clinging to that, you know, in learning about folkways and rituals, I was convinced I'd find some like one formula to like replicate, 
<laughs> but I often say that folkways are living ways and that myth and ritual and food, people and places are always changing. And so the only place in time we have is really now for that. So on one hand, it can be really disparaging when we grieve the loss of, you know, some of those places, right? Like what was the spring before the Christians built a church on top of it? At the same time, I take a lot of comfort in remembering that these were always evolving traditions. And so when I create the heart as a cauldron, it's really deep in my understanding of the path can't be like recreating one imagined past from one imagined group of people. Like that's not belonging, it's fantasy. <laughs> and instead, I just try again and again to feel into the core, like the foundational questions of how do we collaborate with cycles of life and how are our journeys co-created between ourselves and spirit and each other? How do we deepen that reciprocity? And from here, personally, I then find inspiration from like all the intersections of land and ancestry and chosen family, you know? So for example, like each lunation, like I mention, I always mention several examples of different ways that people have engaged with this time of year, for example, but the majority of the episode is really just spent talking about our personal praxis and how is it that I personally have indeed built like that sense of real living relationship and, and what are the ways that you uniquely explore that for yourself? Yeah, I really like your podcast. I <laughs> just want to – I want it to be heard by all. But I, I really, really like yours too. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate the education and then the the real-time present moment application of it. I, I used to be so into like the research of – the different solar feast days and and all just the ways all these like in, indigenous all over the world ways connected and and I I sort of lost that and then I found your podcast right when I lost that sort of like practice in my life and I really loved your carnival one that was really really cool so just want to like shine some light on that in a big way I'm so deeply appreciative of that and to keep with this, the feeling of like being at the sleepover. I just want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear you talk about how belonging has taught you about belonging. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I assume you were like a total wizard master at belonging before you started the podcast, right? So you would have nothing yeah. to learn oh. and do. <laughs> right. I just turn on the microphone and wax poetic on all that I've learned. Yeah. <laughs> No, actually, I mean, yes, tongue in cheek, right? But it's, I mean, so much of what you shared, I feel the same way because the primary format of my podcast is to bring people on who have experiences of life I don't. And once in a while, share mine. And I think it's been such a gift to me personally to just be in conversation with people that I wouldn't necessarily meet on the street in my town, which makes me sad, but also thank you, internet, being alive in this time. As someone, you know, as two people who are like so passionate about ancestral ways and like folk ways, like here we are talking on the internet to each other, you know, it's so great. <laughs> and, you know, I yearn for the old ways and yet I'm so grateful to have these 
computer devices, you know, so it's a really interesting straddling of worlds, but in that same way of its living ways. And we are the myth makers of this time. I really, I had uh, a guest, Yaya Merriman Rivera, I think. Uh, the episode is called Braided Blood. And I talked to her in a really tender time. And she was like, can I just be real with you right now? Like what we're doing right now, talking on a podcast, like this is like archival data. And we have no idea how like the descendants of our world, like who will find it. She was like, even on other planets, like where is this? This is a transmission of our time. So basically she was calling me to like really bring a deeper reverence calling me in to bring a deeper reverence to and honoring of what I'm doing. And, and I extend that to you in this moment of what we are doing is, is we are documenting this moment and pulling upon the threads of all time, right? Of, of all time, whole time and using our languages and our bodies as a vessel for sharing it. And so in that way, I feel so humbled to just show up and see what happens. Like uh, you and I were talking, sort of arranging this, and I was admiring how you had a process and you had like a Google Doc. And I was like, wow, I'm a total chaos podcaster. And I just show up and I see what happens. And I was like, this is so cool. We're going to come together and see how it goes. And in that, I think it's such a beautiful thing to have these deeply intimate and informative conversations and be witnessed, be witnessed by those who listen, you know, and sometimes they tell us they're listening, but oftentimes we have no idea (laughs) who's listening and how we're impacting them and how they take the information. But it is like making an etching in time of this moment and what we are digesting, processing and putting out that feels deeply sacred. It feels, it ritualizes it for me in such a beautiful way. It's not like some marketing tactic. It's like a beautiful practice. And I have been forever changed by the conversations I've had with these folks who have shared with me different beliefs. I haven't always agreed with them even. I've had ones I've really been challenged by. And I wonder if I in this time where I live in this moment, if I would be able to have those conversations otherwise, I don't know. So in that way, the podcast belonging is keeping me accountable to the practice of belonging in a way that it feels like a responsibility that I am just happily signed up for. Mm. Yeah. I, I really want to invite everyone listening right now to just reflect on how they themselves are honoring the practice of belonging, right? That everything can be a practice of belonging. Like obviously podcasts don't have the corner on that because I'm so grateful for what you were just voicing there. And there were two, well, more, much more than two threads, but two threads I wanted to circle back on. One was the what I heard from you is the lesson of the importance of being witnessed as so central to our belonging. And the second being that moment you talked about of, you know, you have a podcast on belonging, yet there are people who've said things you don't agree with. 
like, oh my God, what, what does that mean that I need to cast them out? And <laughs> what does that say about belonging? And I know this is a really thorny, big topic, but I'm wondering, you know, how you do, especially as someone who has lots and lots of external guests welcomed into the space of your podcast, like how do you approach belonging when someone is in disagreement with you? Mm, thorny indeed. Well, I can say that when I've invited someone on my podcast, there is a bit of a centering of them just in the nature of like, you are a guest in my home. And I think the most I've ever done is said openly, like, I feel myself challenged by what you're sharing. And here are my initial thoughts and I'll sit with it. So I'm not sure if that's the quote right way to navigate that. But there is a real sense of like, you're a guest in my home and I'm not going to, you know, it's like a delicate. And I think that's sort of my flavor is gentle. Again, like the the part of me that like doesn't love conflict, but wants to lean into disagreement a bit more. Uh, so that's how I have done it in the past. But now I feel like, okay, you know what, Catherine, you're right. Like a part of belonging is like inviting in this deeper conversations. And like, I do feel a little bit like zinged up about that. Like, do I want to do that? I don't know. And so that to me is usually a sign like, okay, maybe I should invite in guests and conversations where I don't necessarily agree. And like, could I do that? Could I navigate that? And like, uh, like, could I navigate that intensity? I don't know. What do you think? That's, I certainly don't feel ready to yeah. have a podcast <laughs> like, where yeah. like my hat is, is my hat is completely off to you in in even like you know considering that earnestly because this is so thorny and I guess I will say though that like I love that we're collective we um ha- we're having this ongoing conversation around disagreement accountability, cancel culture, these things. I certainly don't have the answer, but the reason I'm excited about that is because I feel like that means we're getting closer to belonging. Because before when we were all in our, well, especially I'll just speak for, you know, white people, like just so in that bubble of, you know, privilege and sameness, or at least not needing to have ourselves uh, held to such accountability to the level that we're being invited into right now. Yeah, we're not going to have the discomfort of and the questions around accountability and stuff. So I just take it as a, a really good sign that we're in that really challenging transitional place where we're moving from isolated bubbles into that root network below. And there's just going to be a real weird time <laughs> where we figure out how to do that, yeah. um, how to do that well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I said it and I was like, oh, it's on the podcast now. I just said it to her. What am I going to do? <laughs> well, okay. But I'm glad you said that because I feel like part of this is like the beauty of belonging, just to keep going back to that theme, is that ideally we've built up enough of a sense of reciprocity and shared commitment and 
being authentic with each other, that we have a foundation, a safe space that we can explore in and, and like maybe consider something and then maybe try something totally different. And that's, you know, that's totally going to be okay. So yeah, I'd much rather people voice kind of what's in their heart and then change their mind than feel real stuck in like some self they've committed to in the past. Oh yeah. Normalize changing your mind. <laughs> Normalize sharing the whole process, the nonlinear process to get to any action. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I am totally with you. So Becca, there's one question I really, really want to make sure we get to um, in our beautiful time together. And that's how do we find belonging in a year such as this, in an epic such as this? <laughs> And open invitation to address that either in terms of like pragmatic things that you've been playing with or sort of in a bigger invitation kind of way. I was really excited for this question and there's many, many answers, I think. And so I'm just going to do what I always do is just see what is wanting to bubble up in this moment. And there's like three areas. There's grief there's urgency, and there's waste. And that's just truly where my attention is. Uh, and it's it's very much sort of hyper-local in its view. And I think that probably has to do with the fact that I've just been in my home for the past year, and I'm very much in a a time of my life being postpartum with a baby um, of just like my world is small, gloriously so. And it's really, I have a harder time thinking global and I have an easier time acting local. <laughs> and I think there's wisdom in that, in this moment of like what you can control, right? That just sort of like focus on what you can control and also creates a feeling of safety and a feeling of magic, of me as the magic ma maker, a sense of reenchantment. So grief, what can I say about grief? It's so present. And I find every time I think it's about something else, it's actually about grief. And I find myself really, really drawn to talking openly about grief because it feels like, I feel like it magnetizes it out of, it sort of like pulls it out of others. I find I can sort of intellectualize it where I'm like, he's not really angry. He's grieving. Like that's what that really is about is what's the, yeah, that there needs to be a grief ritual around that. I think we need a grief ritual around that. And I remember you posted on your Instagram stories about your grief hair ritual where this is how I saw it. I wonder how you actually saw it, but you had this part of your hair, you would braid every, or comb your fingers through and braid every day. I'm touching my hair now as I talk about it and, and weave in grief and honoring of, I don't know what you were grieving, but you were grieving it. And then in a ritual, you shaved it off and you shared it. And I was struck in the heart by this beautiful moment you were asking your followers to witness for you, which was this, I am very curious for you to respond and how it was for you and what 
what the experience was for you, but it just felt like, oh, we can ritualize this moment of feeling. Like, I wonder how many of us in this time feel anxious or unresolved or need some sort of release that can happen through something as simple as braiding your hair every night and ritual and shaving it off or in my case, I'm brushing my hair because I'm losing a lot of hair right now. After one gives birth, a lot of hair is released through just the hormonal intensity of getting a child out of your body. And so I have been also working with hair <laughs> and brushing it and and burying it all throughout the garden. And then I had a friend say, oh, you're introducing yourself to the mycelium of your land. And I just said, Okay this feels real and right. This, yes, yes, yes. This feels real and right. So I'm going to pause there because I feel like maybe people are like, what is this ritual she did with her hair? I don't know if you want to share a bit about that, but it just felt so tender and true. Uh, yeah. Thank you for allowing me space to share that. So this was really inspired in part by, you know, I offer a, a Patreon and every month I sort of bridge off of the the podcast and say, okay, here are some, you know, suggestions for you to take what I'm saying in the podcast and turn that into living praxis in your life. And as part of that, there's always a very, um, it, it's a ritual that you can really personalize to yourself. And so in this case, I personalized my own <laughs> ritual that I had sort of offered and it was a, a grief ritual. And I loved what you said, Becca, about how every time I think it's about X, it's really about grief. And even when we figure out that it's about grief, what I've found is that we think we start off thinking we're grieving one thing. And as we get deeper, we realize we're grieving something else very often or both of those things at the same time. And this ritual I wanted to do was to grieve, you know, not having the father that I wanted and, you know, dealing with a lot of abuse and, and let that loneliness I was talking about. And so what I set out to do was take a piece of my hair, like a chunk of my hair at the front of my head. And yeah, every night I would sort of like weave those feelings of grief in. And what I found was that in such an a physical, visceral sitting with that grief, I realized what I was actually grieving was, it was really actually grief for my inner child. It was grief for the girl who was alone. And so, so beautiful because it felt like I was actually braiding my own like inner child's hair in a way. And it just took on so many layers that, you know, were just so helpful, which is what happens with all of us when we do ritual and we just open ourselves to it. It's always so much more magical than we ever think it could ever be, you know, setting out. Um, yeah. And then at the end of a period of time doing that every day, I shaved that off as a signal of stepping into this next phase of my experience of that. It was beautiful. And I know it was it was tender and there's, again, this witnessing, right? This witnessing is such a gift for both sides. And that speaks, again, to what we touched upon at the beginning of that equal give and take that reciprocity, the gift of you sharing that and the gift of us 
watching you do it. Thank you. I I also love the the reciprocity that I saw in your your own hair ritual that you're in the middle of. I just didn't I don't want us to get too far away from this and me forget to touch on that. It's it's such a profound example of, you know, yes, like let's learn the, you know, ancestral ways that we feel drawn to. Let's learn ritual throughout time, but like nothing can substitute what you feel drawn into through spirit and your own self and your, you know, community, your people um, in the present moment. And the fact that you were responding to that reality of losing your hair as in, in such a like <sighs> tremendously potent moment, like you just, if I heard you right, it was like you just felt compelled to be with that in a very intentional way. And the way you did that wasn't just to take your hair and then like manifest something for yourself, mm. you, which you know, I could go on about that. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you took your hair and you fed the earth with it. The same earth that I know from admiring and drooling over your garden and your chickens. Um, my own chickens say hi, by the way. Um, <laughs> the same earth that is actually going to be feeding you and then you in turn feed your baby and then you're giving more hair to the earth. I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so when we just like soften into that, like it's just all about relationship and reciprocity and that's all there is, then it becomes, like I said earlier, like so much more complex and simple than we can ever imagine if we tried to plan it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you want to answer the question? Yeah. I, you know, I feel drawn to share more on the pragmatic side of things just because yeah. I think actually it's it's partly coming from this past year where like <laughs> I could definitely hang more in like the esoteric stuff. And this year was a nice, solid regrounding <laughs> in the mundane world for me. Like I remember even at the start of quarantine, I tried my typical MO when I deal with unknown and stress, which is to just like be productive, right? Like I'm going to work my yeah. way out of this. Yep. And I was in the middle of that. And I was literally like frantically searching my house for something and <laughs> opened the door to this room that I'm sitting in here and was like, oh, nope, it's not in here. Turned really quickly and slammed the door on my own face. And it just like took me, it, I broke my nose and it just like, it took me down for the count. Like I had to come re I had to reground so hard last year. And that's just like a handy little quick metaphor for like all the other kind of regrounding I had to do. So um in that spirit, a few things I want to offer up. I as ever really found so much belonging in the land, of course. I mean, we keep talking about that, but that was already part of my life. But being forced to stay put in even bigger ways, you know, made that even more so. And um, yeah, I just want to just share for anyone listening, you know, that you don't need to live in the countryside in some idyllic place to really cultivate this, that, you know, you can belong with, um, I have a, a 
friend, Mary Kinney, who has a deep, deep love affair with the trees on her block in Brooklyn. (laughs) So always want to just offer that up for people. Belonging through the spirit realm this past year for me especially was a big lesson in leaning really hard on my ancestors and knowing that they wanted that, like they were waiting for me to lean hard on them and to really fall into that belonging. And one more pragmatic And actually, I just want to clarify really quickly too. When I say belonging with the ancestors, in this moment, I'm not actually even talking about like ancestral practices or like history. You don't even have to have known who your ancestors are for what I'm talking about here, where, you know, in my experience, I've just cultivated that lived relationship through things like journeying um, or just literally speaking aloud as I go about my day or like, sometimes like yelling in the middle of a trail in the woods. Like, <laughs> anyway, to go to the last sort of pragmatic tidbit I want to offer up is belonging through, yeah, just rethinking the online bit. Like we are all forced into that as like a pretty escalated experience like you've talked about, Becca. And one thing that was a blessing that came of that for me was, you know, just being able to volunteer, for example, in ways I couldn't before. And I decided to volunteer in a way that would help me feel more connected to community that I am always trying to be in relationship with, in this case, like the queer community. So volunteering with Trevor right now. And yeah, I know volunteering is like a thing that kind of gets thrown around um, and we don't always have the privilege of time to give to that. But it's been a really interesting teacher in belonging for me this past year. So, yeah. Do I'm curious, do you have, are, I'm trying to figure out like where you live. <laughs> and like, apparently we're like looking at each other's Instagrams, like where do they live? Like, do you have like a, a town, like a town or do you live out in the woods? Like I think you do. <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely wooded. There's one stoplight yeah. in the town okay. that's by the post office. For those I who see. are listening and not watching, I'm doing big air quotes here, <laughs> um, post office in town. Yeah. So it's wooded, but it's kind of like um, densely populated woodland. I see. Yeah. 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 So I really hear you on the volunteering and I ask about your community because I live right outside of San Francisco and I found that when the pandemic hit, like right up leading up to the pandemic, I was like really just trying to get like the street I live on to be more connected. Like I just, we have really intense fire season. I was like, let's all get together and agree on an evacuation route. Like, and that was like sort of starting to happen. And then the pandemic hit and it's like doors were shut and everyone went on like next door you know, next door, the website where like your community talks and it just became like a shit talking thing where we were all in our homes communicating and kind of bickering. And I was just like, would we have these same conversations if we were like on our street, you know, and I was holding a carton of eggs for you and you were like dropping off ice cream you know, for me, because I was, you know, just had surgery or something. I don't know. Like there's an energetic and and I'm always really interested in like town dynamics, like our street dynamics that some people don't live next to people quite so close like I do. 
where I find myself just trying to bring more aliveness to my street in a way that we can feel trust, you know, in each other. Because back to what you said, it's like interdependence cannot be argued. (laughs) Like here, here we all are. And so you bring up volunteering. And I think that's the sort of on the pragmatic side, like that's the sort of thing I want to do. Like I want to talk to like the crotchety, grumpy, like old man who lives across the street from me who probably votes differently than me because I'm like determined, determined to like recreate the village here because like what if he's ill and the power goes out because the fires are happening? Like I want us and that's just like part of my praxis over here. I'm making emphatic (laughs) body (laughs) gestures to everything you're saying because I live on a street with just five houses, right? And, oh man, this has been a lesson in belonging because we have, like you were saying, like we actually have like a running text message that we all use for things like, because our power goes out all the time here. So like uh, one of our neighbors needs medication refrigerated and um, you know, another person might need their driveway plowed another day or like whatever. And it's actually been really beautiful, but it, it's also been really uncomfortable because it's very Trump fill here. Like even now, Trump never left. And <laughs> oh my. Um, yeah. So on on to the left of our house, there's a family of policemen. And then somehow, I don't know how this happened, but that family, like two more families moved into the same house and they've all been police. It's just the police house. <laughs> I think I am like destined to grapple with this question because I personally feel very abolitionist and that's what I work for and take very concrete steps for towards. And yet it just, as I was sitting with like, well, what do I do with the cop who lives right next to me, right? Like, because we're always giving out our chickens eggs and, you know, vegetables from the garden. I was like, it just doesn't feel right to me to like deny, like to not give eggs to this one house on the street. So it's been a real messy experiment of working towards something like abolition and living next to the very, like one of the very, you know, representations of the thing I'm working against. (laughs) Oh, I hear you. Right. How do we do this? How do we do this? Yeah. Keep me posted. Yeah, I will. (laughs) will. (laughs) Yeah. When one of us has figured it out, we'll just yeah. DM we'll, the other we'll tell person. the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, that feels like a really beautiful place to wrap up. And so of course, you know, we can't end the swap cast without giving each other space to share about, you know, your offerings and, you know, what those have to do with belonging and just, yeah, anything you want to send us away with. Sure. Hmm. What am I doing? <laughs> Recovering from giving birth and adding another being into my life and keeping that being alive. It takes up a lot of my time. And I have, in addition to that, my quote work that if it felt like work, I probably wouldn't do it. So to be fair, my very enjoyable service 
is my podcast, Belonging, which um, those of you who are listening to The Heart is a Cauldron can come on over and listen to. And I have a membership community called Hearthfire that you can check out, joinhearthfire.com. That is really a community for folks who want to be in this deeper practice of belonging while honoring where they very much are individually on the journey. So we don't really have a curriculum. We have invitations and we live seasonally, but not all of us are even in the Northern Hemisphere. So we speak to seasonal themes as it as it feels on the land that like the bioregion you're in, the land you're on, and the place you are in your life. And we connect together and really the intention behind Hearth Fire is that you then take that into your community and that we're all just starting circles, holding spaces virtually and in person so that this work may continue and ripple out knowing that it is very much nuanced and complicated, but we do it together because a lot of us have that feeling of being alone. And then I am publishing my first book. So my book Root and Ritual is coming out November 16th, 2021. And I don't think you can pre-order it yet, but uh, you can follow me mostly not on Instagram. That's where I am, Becca P. Estrelli, or join my newsletter list and I can share more about that. But that will be, I'll talk about that a lot more at the end of the summer and in the autumn here in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm so excited for that. I cannot freaking wait. Oh, I've been working on it for so many years. I'm like, ah, let's do it. <laughs> I can only imagine. Sharing my stuff in return. So just organizing my thoughts. Yeah. Oh, I've already talked, I think, enough about the Heart as a Cauldron podcast, which oh, actually, you know what? One thing I will say, part of the reason Becca and I got together for this, um, well, part of the reason for me anyway, besides the fact that belonging is clearly an incredible offering and service to the world, and I'm so down to uplift what you're doing and you know collaborate. Aside from that, people kept tagging us together in the like year end podcast wrap up, which just made me so happy. Yeah. So yeah. uh, Vice versa. Belonging folks, you're always welcome over at the heart as a cauldron. And I also mentioned the Patreon too, which is the way to kind of turn that into a personalized uh, practice as well. And very often we're, you know, because part of the mission of the of the heart as a cauldron is not just personal healing but collective healing often involving like questions around community too and please do find me on instagram and my website katherinefink.com and uh my name is it's kind of a a weird spelling so just i would maybe point you to the show notes instead of me spelling it out here on precious airtime <laughs> <laughs> I'll tag you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yes, I am a patron. I am a patron of yours. It's so great. I love it. I love the Patreon model. I think it's I I'm I think it's brilliant and I love how you can share more deeply based on each episode. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of that overall and obviously the same with Hearthfire too, and even your book in a you know certain way is just um, uh, how are we finding new ways to reach one another and be in relationship? And yeah, I'm all for it too. 
Ah, oh, this was so fun. This was so fun. Thank you for the invitation. What a cool idea, Swapcast. I think what a great way for both of our listeners to really get to know the both of us in a different way. Because I don't know about you, but this is not my typical structure of an episode that's like sleepover vibe. So thank you for something different, which is nice. It switches it up. It's really nice. Yeah. Uh, I know this is, yeah, I thank you for being willing to, to experiment with something different. And just to give credit where credit's due, I started doing Swapcast after I got, uh, or I became hip to um, Gordon White started doing them. And he and I did a really cool Swapcast on Mythic Time. Oh. And it was so good that I, um, yeah, just really wanted to do, uh, more. So yeah, credit where credit's due and thank you for this one. It's been so beautiful. Yeah. So lovely. Yes. Thank you. I feel you in the mycelial network with me. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.